Hello, this is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is February the 18th, 2021. And this is part of and one of the final uh, interviews that I'm doing for the LSAT study group with various tutors who uh, have been prominent on the board. And there are two tutors, or at least two tutors, who I've not had the opportunity to do a podcast with. One is Jake Feldman, who is based in New York, New York, and Keith Siska, who is in the southern part of the country, waving at us uh, from Corinth, uh, Texas. Both of them have been involved in the group for quite some time, are consistent contributors, and part of the LSAT study group is to allow people to get to know the tutors a bit. Uh, before or as part of engaging them. So this is a great opportunity to meet Jake, meet Keith, and I'm sure we're going to have an interesting conversation today. So welcome to the two of you. How are you doing? Thanks so much, John. Doing great. I'm doing well. Thank you. All right. Well, so February the 18th, this is actually an interesting day uh, in the LSAT study group. We're coming off uh, you know, we periodically have these uh, these uh, difficult discussions in the group, and uh, we've been we've had one the last couple of days about the role of LSAT tutors, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, marketing practices, fees charged, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, I actually put up uh, my own post about that uh, today. And so I think this is actually a very, very timely day to invite two of the uh, more prominent tutors on the board into the discussion to talk about that. And I thought what would be interesting would be to actually uh, talk about uh, talk to two experienced LSAT tutors about what does it mean to be an LSAT tutor and what do you try to achieve and, uh, and all those great things. Because one of the things that I found really interesting looking at the comments is that uh, nobody ever considers it from the perspective of the LSAT tutor. So maybe we could begin with each of you describing, you know, how long you've been doing this, what got you into it, and that sort of thing. Should we start with Jake only because you're on my left? <laughs> sure, no problem. Uh, appreciate your having us. Uh, I've been a professional tutor and educational consultant for 20 years now. Uh, began in uh, 2001 here in New York, tutoring SATs and ACTs, uh, quickly moved on and expanded my repertoire to the graduate level exams, started teaching GRE, GMAT, and LSAT in and around 2004, uh, and have been doing so since. I worked for a large uh, boutique agency out of New York um, that's actually global at this point um, for 10 years uh, and then left to start my own company in 2011, 2012 and in there and uh, have been doing so with my company here in New York ever since. So um, LSATs are a big part of my repertoire, but it's uh, in um, a larger menu of test prep and test design. Um, so I certainly come at this from a point that's not unique, but is is different from a lot of the LSAT tutors out in the world in that I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I'm an educator at heart, and I see this as as part of the uh, the larger network of standardized tests and and how it lives inside that that larger envelope. Well, it certainly is that, and you have been at it long enough so that probably you would make my honorary list of LSAT historians and LSAT scholars. So that, that's pretty. <laughs> Thr thrilled to be on the you list. Are, you are, you are a, you're a lawyer or a law school graduate or one or the other or both? Or Are you a lawyer, Keith? Yes. Uh, I, but I'm, I was an educator first. I started 
teaching about 20 years ago as an MCAT instructor. And I, at that time I viewed MCAT or, or test prep tutoring very much like the students do. I didn't view it as a profession. It was a job while I was doing graduate school. And uh, it, it turned out that I just loved the work and I developed a lot of strong relationships with my students. And at some point I started to learn that the LSAT scores that my students were earning correlated with success in law school, correlated with bar passage rate. And I think that's when I really started to wonder why and started to view myself as more than just a tutor because I thought that the work I did with my LSAT students could potentially impact their experience in law school. I thought that I could save them from pain points in their bar exam process. And having tutored the bar exam in addition to a number of other exams, I have only reinforced those beliefs over the last 20 years. Students who do the LSAT prep thoroughly and early, I think that they set themselves up for more success in law school and an easier road on the bar exam. Very interesting. Now, um, listening to each of you, one of the things that I found really interesting was your description of yourself. So Jake says, not a lawyer, but an educator. And I think Keith also referred to himself as an educator. What's the difference between a lawyer and an educator? And I'm interested in the, that you would make that distinction. You know, for me, I think the important thing is to recognize that um, be, lawyer is a profession in and of itself. Those who are lawyers go out and 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 work in the in in the law to rep, to advocate and represent other people. It doesn't mean that a lawyer can't also be an educator. That's certainly true, but. To be an educator is to be a communicator of information, uh, to be nimble, to be flexible. Um, it incorporates skill sets that are separate from the the content of the test itself. Um, in my background, my my mother is a psychiatrist. My mother always thought that I would make a great psychiatrist, would make a great therapist, and I think there are a lot of ways in which my work as a one on one educator is is parallel to the work that she does. Uh, it's very inquiry-based. It's very much uh, helping those who are trying to learn a new set of skills arrive to those set of skills on their own rather than force-feeding it down the, the, to them, right? Th this isn't a matter of simply providing information. This is about being expert with that information and expert in the, in the ways that you communicate it to different people in different circumstances with different needs. And that's, to me, what makes a person an educator rather than simply a communicator of pieces of information. Very interesting. Keith, your thoughts on that? Lawyer versus educator. You know, I think the distinction that I would draw that I think is more palpable to me is the, the distinction between tutor and educator. Because there was a certain point where when I was a tutor, and at some point, I started to realize that it doesn't matter what I believe. What matters is, what does the psychology of learning tell us? And as soon as I started listening to that and incorporating that into my teaching, rather than just assuming everything I observed or everything that had worked for me must be the best method, that's when I think that I started being able to help my students much more. I could listen to them better. I could understand the different needs, the different contexts that they came from, and I wasn't forcing my approach on them anymore. I was trying to help them build skills using the science that I had studied rather than forcing them to go down a path that I had been down. 
just because that was what I knew. This is, I would say, that I, I, I agree with everything Keith is saying, and this aligns very much to what was attempted in the last 10 years in public education. The thrust behind uh, Common Core and the thrust behind changing our approach to math education from one that was very linear and very algorithmically based to one that was inquiry-based and project-based and student-led and flipped classroom this was all about understanding that not every student learns the same way, the same things, at the same speed, at the same time. And teachers cannot simply choose one curriculum and force everybody to do it and move on. It doesn't work. It doesn't work for everybody. And, and, and it, do, it doesn't work well for anybody. And it doesn't work at all for everybody. So what I'm getting from this, I think if I could sum it up, or at least this part of the discussion would be the need to be flexible and to recognize that people are different. And your job is to tap into what works for that individual person. That, that's pretty much the message. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's why reading a book on the LSAT isn't enough. You can read the book, but how does that apply to you? How does that work for you? It's the same reason why you can't become a, a superior athlete simply by watching other people do the same sport. It's not well, enough. Of course, the books would be the least flexible of all, wouldn't they? Because you, yeah, know, yeah. You, can't, you can't change that. All right. So can one of you give examples of uh, – let, let's start with sort of extremes, Okay. In terms of, you know, you're contacted by, say, oh, I need help with the LSAT. What would be examples of students that would be very extreme in the, uh, the differences in their needs that would drive your approach, that would drive different approaches? Hmm. You know, the, the, the most extreme thing that people want from me is immediacy, and I can't deliver it to them. So just adjusting their expectations on that front, I find to be the, the first hurdle with a large number of students. Getting them to acknowledge that this might not be the right cycle, this might not be the right date for the test. They just don't wanna let go of that typically. And in my experience, this is a, a long-term learning process. And I don't even like for my students to make a test date until we, we have some confidence in the practice test scores. Yet people come to me and say, I'm registered and I'm testing in five days. What can you do for me? What do you do for them? Yeah, well, I see Jake nodding. Of course, that's, <laughs> that's true. So they've procrastinated. They've done really nothing. And would you say that to some extent that's a transference responsibility on their part? 100%. 100%. There's an eagerness to say, I don't know what to do at this point. I'm going to give myself over to an expert who then is going to lead me down the right path. But the problem is that no expert, no matter how good they are, no matter how motivating they are, can guarantee a result on the other side. Ultimately, the learning happens because of intrinsic motivation. And you, you have to be eager and open and ready to learn and improve. If you're not, there's nothing I can do to help you. Agreed. You know, what I do is I typically will discourage those students from hiring me, even though I know it's a, a, you know, against my interest to do that. But 
Is it really against your interest? Yeah, I mean, in the long term, maybe I don't want people who who perform poorly to have, you know, to go out and say that I charged them the money. So maybe you're right, but I don't do it. I, I view it as against my interest because I could make the money now. And it is with reluctance that I tell them, please don't hire me. And I try to find less expensive options for them because I just don't think their goals are realistic. And so I try to minimize what they spend. Um, the, the there's also the student on the other end of the spectrum that comes to me a year and a half before they intend to go to law school and says, I'd like to do three hours of tutoring a week. And I say, okay, what have you done? Nothing. And the, the, the student that's done nothing at that point, I say, look, the first thing you should do is go expose yourself to the test. Tutoring is not what you need right now, unless you are in a position where you absolutely cannot progress without some form of extrinsic structure with somebody imposing structure on you and on your learning, you don't need a tutor today. What you need is to go to Khan Academy or to go to some other free resource to, to download one of the free prep tests and analyze it to death and understand what the test is and what it does. Watch everything on YouTube you can. Expose yourself to what the test is before you come to a tutor and ask for expertise. You need to know what you're doing first. You need a stance first. You're really identifying the need here for why don't we call it pre-tutoring prep or something like that, right? Pre-tutoring yeah. prep. So let's just, uh, between the two of you, let's, could you identify, say, three essential things that people need to do to prep for the initial tutoring session? Something prep in a way that will allow them to determine perhaps, who might be a good tutor for them, prep in a way that might allow them to be a better consumer of tutoring services. What would be uh, some That's easy for me to answer. Yeah, go ahead. You know, the whole reason that I started developing Triple Review and the whole reason that I, I made the graphics that, we, that I made with Jake is because I, I wanted my students to have a process that they could use to learn on their own and to come to me when they had reached the, you know, the impassable point or to go to any other tutor or to reach for any other resource, but only when they had exhausted their own ability to, uh, to work through the material. And that's why it's repetitive. And that's why it's somewhat tedious to force them to grapple with it before they reach for the explanation or the tutor. Yeah. I would say prior to that, number one is you have to take a cold diagnostic. You have to know where you are. You have to know what you know and what you don't know. I, I think taking one cold diagnostic before you've done anything else is, is paramount. Um, I, I think triple review, if it's a thing that you can engage in immediately and you understand if you need some, some reference points, and, and this is our framework, it doesn't have to be everybody's framework. I think it's a really good one. Um, but if it's, you know, whatever that platform is, whatever that self-study method is, you have to start doing it and uncover your own abilities and your own weaknesses. And um, I don't think it can be complete without blind review. It may not have to be triple review, but if it doesn't have some amount of time testing and some amount of blind review where you're reviewing the questions without the benefit of the correct answer and without the benefit of the explanation, I think you're really doing it inefficiently. Yeah. Uh, explanations are the wrong thing. You don't want to go watching explanation videos from day one. So I think it's called I think it's called diagnostic. I think it's some form of digging into 
to, to tests. For those who are completely lost, have no place to start, have no framework to understand what they're looking at, have no experience in logic games or in, in, um, you know, in zebra games or in, or in anything like that. Um, if they need a guide, there are some good printed materials out in the world that are good starting points for that. Uh, among all of them, I think the LSAT trainer by Mike Kim is a good place to start. Um, I don't know that you need to do it. I don't know that it works for everybody. But but if, you, if you're a person who needs that framework around you, for $50, it's a, it's a decent place to start. Um, and then at that they're available on the on the LSAT website, just a decent introduction to the test for free. At least it uh, used to be. Is that not there anymore? It's they've partnered with Khan the same way the College Board did. So all of that stuff is on Khan Academy now. And the stuff on Khan Academy is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Just minimal. You'll exhaust yeah. it quickly. And you should. I tell students, if you haven't done all the stuff on Khan Academy, go do it and call me tomorrow. Okay, so that that provide that provides a brief introduction. Now, a lot of things you're saying are very very interesting. You know, you talked about explanations. Um, I'm going to make a statement, and I'd be interested in your comments on it. Okay, you can tell by my statement what I think, but I don't think that uh, reviewing explanations to questions is uh, very helpful to people. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed oh. twice. Great minds think alike. Can you elaborate on that? Uh, explanations are other people's understanding of the material. It's post passive. Post hoc. It's passive, right? You're getting somebody else to explain to you how to do something, and you don't have to be involved in it at all. So if that's the first thing you do after you take a practice section and you watch somebody else's explanation of how to do it, you will never learn for yourself how to do it, what you could or could not have done on your own. You need to do that question, that section, that game, that passage on your own once timed. You need to do it again untimed. You need to take as long as you can to plumb every tool, every idea you have um, from, from the recesses of your brain to try to understand what you see on the page. Then you find out what the right answer is. And then you go back again and you analyze your thinking. You try to understand it going, going backwards on your own, work backwards from the answer. And if at that point you still don't understand it, an explanation can be helpful, but it would be way more helpful to go to somebody who knows you already, who understands the way you think, to explain it not in their own language, but in your language. I go even further. I don't think that explanations are just ineffective. I, I think they can be detrimental crutches that give students false confidence because the explanations are so coherent that they believe they get it and they don't understand that that particular question will never appear again. Mm -hmm. And also that some of the patterns that are being pointed out are arbitrary and don't have to persist into the future. I mean, I think without teasing the language yourself, if you're constantly relying on someone else to point the patterns out to you, it's hard to know which ones to trust and which ones not to. So well, I think the explanations are, are, are harmful crutches. Yeah, well, it, it seems to me that, first of all, um, 
the job is to get people to figure out how to identify the answers and not to understand the way other people have expressed the answers. Right. Yep. Uh, you know, because to put it another way, there's a lot of people who sort of theoretically know what to do, but can't actually do what they know. So, you know, your job is to, I suppose, bring their background skills, knowledge level up to a point. I think that's part of it. But then it becomes, I think, a question of implementation. How does that, how do those skills bear on the identification of the answers to these damn LSAT questions? The other thing that I think is important for assuming anybody's listening to this to realize is that it can take 90 minutes for somebody to write out an answer to an LSAT question in publishable form. Or more. Or more. Yeah, depending. So, you know, to try to pass that stuff off as bearing any relation to the actual test experience is, is I think, absolutely absurd. Agreed. But but I will say this. There is value in the 90 minutes that that person spent writing out that explanation for that person. Right. Why, why, why is it that Keith and I and you and, and a number of other expert educators out there are able to so fluently look at LSATs and understand answers? It's not because we are smarter or better. It's because we have spent the last 20 years or longer not only looking at LSATs, but analyzing LSATs and then explaining LSATs to other people in various forms. That's what makes us expert. And so the, the, the thing I've been trying to communicate to my students for years, not just with LSAT, with SAT, with, with math, with, with anything that they're working on, is you don't understand it until you can explain it to the next person and explain it well and explain it effectively. You want to know that you've mastered it? Explain why everything is right. Explain why why everything else is wrong. Explain why all the wrong stuff could have been right were things different. There are so many opportunities to learn more about what's on the page than simply what the right answer is. The right answer is the least important part of your prep. Right. Words are ideas, and you have to be able to communicate your words to validate your ideas. Well, you know, when we look at uh, multiple choice in general, but Let's keep it to the LSAT in particular. <laughs> um, the, it seems to me, okay, that a principal rule of LSAT test design, when we look at the answer choices, is to find ways to attract people to the wrong answers mm -hmm. and repel them from the right answers. So I think that a lot of prepping, teaching, tutoring, whatever, improving people, bringing them along with LSAT, is getting them to develop a consciousness of what I would call wrong answer technology, right? I mean, how is it that LSAT is so damn good at getting you to check off something that is clearly against your best interest, that is keeping you away from your career aspirations, your dreams? Yet they do that and somehow or other manage to bury that credited response where you can't see it, you don't like it, or something like that. Now, I'd be interested in hearing your views on, you know, bear in mind that all these LSAT scores have to mean pretty much the same thing or they can't be compared. How is it that LSAT manages to get people to consistently act against their best interests 
enough time so that they don't get into law school or they underperform on the test. How do they do that? I mean, there are a couple of ways. Keith and I have been discussing this for the last couple of months as we began teaching together. And one of the things that we've discovered is that wrong answer choices have a couple of ways that they draw you in. Um, They can make rhetorical shifts that appear to be similar in structure to what you've anticipated in in a stimulus or in a passage, but make one small rhetorical mistake that's easily hidden within some complex grammatical form. So if you can't penetrate the grammar of the sentence itself, you don't understand that the rhetorical shift has happened. And all you see are pieces of vocabulary that were familiar from the stimulus. And you say, well, then that's good enough. That is a fascinating way of putting it. You know, I used to put that when I was teaching. I would call these things, I actually had a phrase for this. And I would call them compound thought wrong answer choices, right? Focusing on the grammar, where typically what happens is that the first half of it is designed to attract you to it. The shift comes after the word and or something like that, which disqualifies it. Is that that sort of how you see it as well? Yep. Yep. That's one way. The other way, they can bury it in a prepositional phrase so that you gloss right over it. They can create some form of passive voice um, or or flip-flop the predicate to the first part of the sentence so that you're you're missing the point of the sentence entirely and you you lose the, the rhetorical shift on the inside. There are all sorts of ways that they can hide it. So, you know, one, one of the, we, this just happened in a class the other night. One of the things that becomes more and more evident is all of those sort of fundamental uh, pieces of learning that we did in middle school and high school with regard to understanding language that we said, well, this is all silly. We don't need any of this. It turns out it's vital. It's vital here because if you're not reading for the structure of what you're reading and simply looking at words and trying to absorb it holistically, you're missing so many of the opportunities to tease out the mistakes that they can present to you. Yeah. I think, I think that that, I think that's absolutely right. Now, you know, a, a message that, that I would like to give directly to listeners is this, that everybody agrees the LSAT is largely a reading test, but what people don't focus on is that the biggest part of the reading test is in the answer choices, right? So what happens is that people will say in logical reasoning, or, you know, they, they, and they should obviously focus on this, but they focus on that stuff to the exclusion, okay, to the exclusion of the structure of the answer choices and that sort of thing. So, I mean, this is, this is incredibly important, incredibly important. Um, okay, other, other ways that they go about uh, uh, attracting you to wrong answers. Keith, do you have any, any additional thoughts on that or... Yes, I think that we're, we are misfocused because the market has long been aware that they create trap answers. Every single LSAT book on the market talks about trap answers, but where I think they are really doing some clever work is in disguising the right answer through obscurity. And the reason I think this is working so well on the newer prep tests is that students are taught to be critical. They're taught to exclude process of elimination. And what we're teaching our students is this concept called the principle of charity, where you have to be open to multiple interpretations. You have to be open to obscure connections. You have to be open to a relevance analysis. You can't be purely critical. 
or else some of the most obscure correct answers are going to escape your attention. And if you really want to be a master at the LSAT, you have to be good at doing both things, being critical and being open and charitable to different meanings. Well, in other words, you, you've got to, you, you have to read uh, carefully, but you have to read flexibly as well. Right. Yeah. That's charitable reading, flexible yeah. one reading. Of the problems, one of the many problems is in the uh, sort of comparative nature, right, uh, of a lot of these answer choices, right, where you think better versus worse, uh, you know, as opposed to right versus wrong. But this is, you know, this is interesting, and it's hard for people. And this is something that I've long maintained because they don't consciously work on, yeah, they don't consciously work on developing the kinds of reading skills that are necessary for LSAT. And, you know, I think that a very good background skills uh, module, right, would be, how to read LSAT answer choices. I mean, it's not almost <laughs> juvenile and stupid. What? I can read. Actually, I hate to break it to you, but you can't. That's okay. brilliant. Good. Yeah. If you learn how to do it. But, you know, why do you, you know, I mean, you know, the way I would experience LSAT students is, you know, why would I do something so simple and presumptively useful when I can do something really hard that I can't understand, right? <laughs> You know, which seems to be the national anthem of a lot of these, a lot of these LSAT students. Well, and, and then the, we, we turn it back on them and they say, well, let me ask you a question. Why is it that you're stuck at 155 and you've been there for three months? Do you know? Because I've been at this for 20 years and I can tell you the reason you're stuck there is that you don't understand why the answers you're getting right are correct. And if you don't, if you don't know why you're choosing the answers you're choosing, how on earth are you going to learn to get to get the the next slice, the next tranche of answers correct, because you're backing into it. You're stumbling into the right answer, not understanding why what you're doing is correct. And you need to know that. And if you if you can't parse the answer choices well, if you don't understand their grammar, if you don't understand what the full implications are, if you aren't really thinking about how all these things are interrelated, how your 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 anticipation of the assumption that you were looking for was a poor anticipation and you just got lucky because the language lined up enough for you to get there, you're never going to move on from 155. You need to go back to that base level and understand why the first 15 were right so that you can get the next five. That is true. But they got, they, you know, they've got to read this stuff better. And, and, yeah. and consciously pay attention to what they're reading. Now, another thing that I want to throw out, you see, you're taking me on this trip down memory lane today. Okay, <laughs> this, is, this is so interesting for me. It you know, brings me back to a different, a different uh, time of my life. Um, but I think that people get these things wrong because they don't pay enough attention to what they're actually being asked. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they sort of think that all of these are prefab categories of questions, when in my experience, they're not. And if they'd spent that extra second actually paying attention, not only to what is being asked, but exactly what the question tells you about how the right answers relate to the wrong answers, would you agree that this would be something they should do? Oh, we hate those lists of question types. We hate them. 
we work with them because our students know them and they're out there, but we think that it's often misleading and it encourages sloppy reading and we rail about this every week. Yeah. Well, the it's LSAT not, is primarily a reading test, which I think we would all agree it is, primarily. Yeah. Okay. Then how is somebody supposed to do well if they approach the test with the idea that, well, I know the LSAT is a reading test, but you know what? I'm not going to read it at all. Nope. I'm going to spend my time on, you know, a list where I believe I know in advance what's going to be asked, and that's that. And this leads to misery. It leads to upset. It leads to low LSAT scores, which leads to not getting into law school, which leads to an academic and career crisis, which leads to appointments with your mother. She said she was a psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. No, that's fine. I'll, 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 leave, I'll leave her number in the comments. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, just, I mean, this, you know, this, this unwillingness to simply do what Elsa is asking you to do, read and understand which, you know, look at where it leads all these problems. Well, look, you know, this is, this is basically why when I get on my soapbox about published materials and about the, the, the large courses offered by publishing companies, it's not because the information there is wrong. It's because the information there has been analyzed and, and curated by somebody else. And so that's their interpretation, their analysis of what is and is not on the test. And when you read that and memorize it as a list of facts to be memorized, what you've done is offloaded the responsibility of the analysis to somebody else. It's now not self-generated. You don't understand it. You've just memorized it. But this isn't a series of facts. You're not being asked to put in order the, the following major dates uh, of, of things that happened during the American Revolution. It's not the same thing. There, there, there is an analysis that went into that. Years and years of analysis by smart people. But now it's somebody else's. It's not yours. You have to do it yourself. And you have to come to that conclusion yourself. When people come to me, the most common question is, I'm really struggling with the concepts of necessary and sufficient. Oh, God. That's, that, that's, that's the most common question. And, and what I tell them is, let go of it all. Let go of it all. Let's start with what is an argument. <laughs> What is deductive reasoning? Let's start there. Because if you don't understand necessary and sufficient, it might be a language problem, but it could be that you'd understand everything and you just are trying to apply somebody else's labels and somebody else's formats and somebody else's approaches. So we have to find out what you do and do not understand from a skill level, not what, what you call it or, or what box you put it in. Yeah, th this is, this is a, a very a big problem. And you know, I don't, you know, I'm not involved actually in LSA teaching, but sometimes I read the discussion going on in the group. And, you know, I sense that a lot of people seem to think that they make progress by understanding definitions or, mm -hmm. you know, in, in sort of a, a verbal sense, but they clearly don't link that to what's going on. You know, these definitions don't make any difference at all, not a bit. Agreed. All test designed so that anybody could do it without ever having heard the word necessary condition or sufficient condition. The questions are intelligently drafted to convey the idea that sufficient, sufficient would be generally a guarantee, you know, of, of something or other, and they do that. So this is a problem. It's you know, it's a lot of misplaced, uh, wasted, wasted energy. Now. 
Let's talk about this more from the, you know, we're talking about this like everybody does from the experience of the student, you know, trying to uh, get through this. And, and we know that's hard and we know that it's stressful. And, but we also know that uh, an unwillingness to accept responsibility and an unwillingness to accept an understanding that the test is primarily about reading and reasoning is at the root of a lot of the problems here. Would you agree? So I have always believed that great teachers, great tutors, by definition, have to care about their students more than the student will ever care about them. Would you agree? Absolutely. That's Absolutely. what they hire us to do, to care about a pro problem they're having. Yeah. Well, and I don't think- Care about the problem. I think it's care about them because they want you to make their lives great, don't they? Yeah, yeah, and and I don't think it's restricted to the to the world of one-on-one -on -one tutoring. You know, I uh, what my second grade teacher retired the year after I had her. She was in her late seventies, and she had had three generations of a friend of mine's family, uh, and they all came to her retirement party, and she knew everybody's name. She remembered everybody from fifty years plus of teaching. She remembered every name. And it's that kind of relationship that you have with with students. So the students don't realize that you invest so much in them. But I remember them all. And I remember the conversations we had. And I remember details of, of the experiences we had together, their failures, their successes. And I feel them right along with them. But they pass. They pass for those students and they don't pass for us. Your thoughts on that, Keith? You know, it doesn't bother me as much as it seems to bother you two, because <laughs> I I view every business opportunity as a result of someone's pain. Every pain point has to be alleviated and people are willing to make trades to accomplish it. And so I view it as very transactional. They are paying me to care. And I do care. I care a lot. I invest a lot into it, but I don't do it for free. I do it for compensation and I charge a lot for it. So I don't view it as an emotional thing. I, I do get close to my students. I do have emotions involved, but um, I don't resent the student for that dynamic because they've paid me a lot of money to, to deal with that dynamic. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you, but I, I, I would say- What was that, John? I don't think there's any suggestion of, of uh, resenting the student, okay? Or the um, dynamic. Maybe that was a poor choice of words. I don't resent no, I the agree, dynamic either. Because, you know, to some extent, right? It's interesting. I mean, we had planned to do this podcast for a while, but, you know, so we're doing it today, coming off, you know, some, you know, really interesting discussion at the group about the role of LSAT tutors and that. And what struck me about it was, in part, among other things, was nobody ever sees this from the perspective of a tutor. Right. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, professional LSAT tutors, you know, ones who've been in this for years and years, by definition, you know, absolutely have to invest a tremendous amount of themselves in the progress uh, of these students. And I'm not saying it, it I, I'm just observing that there's not a lot of reciprocity here. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. And, and, and I would say that, you know, the, the, I, I do this and I get paid to do it, but I don't do it because I'm getting paid. I do it because I love it. 
there are plenty of other things I could do with my life to get paid. And, and, and I could have chosen those paths, but I discovered at a young age that I loved teaching. I loved working with young people. I loved the, the, the joy that I got out of watching somebody else's successes. Um, and I married that joy and that, um, and that skill set I had with, uh, with other pieces of skill, other, other, other skills and other knowledge that I had to deliver it in the best way that I could. And that turned out to be test prep and academic tutoring. Um, it could have been any number of things. I was a musician before I was a tutor. Um, and I worked both as a performing musician and as a, as a director and as a trainer of young musicians. But it turned out that this was the one that I chose because it brought me the most joy and because it was the best opportunity for me to apply those skills and that joy that I had for this in a way that made me a living and, and supported my family. So it, it, it is both, certainly. It is what, what Keith is saying. Um, but it is also a, an emotional choice for me because I've invested my professional life, my career, myself into this. And my career depends on my ability to deliver a great product to my students and have my students be pleased with the, the progress they make and with the product that I deliver to them. Well, I think that that's the only reason that that in the that anybody would make a career a profession out of this right i mean i can understand that uh and i'm not by the way i'm not uh disparaging any individuals or anything like that but i mean i think the reality is this that you know anybody who makes a career out of tutoring uh is invested in this in a way there's no possibility that you know some temporary person you know is just trying to you know uh, you know help people as sort of a uh, a summer job or, or, or even, you know, working for a, uh, a test prep company or something, you know, to, I mean, there's no possible way or, well, that's okay. it would be unusual for somebody like that to bring the kind of commitment to this that, mm -hmm. you know, the longer term tutors do. And there's the only reason, I mean, this is not, clearly it's not a get rich thing. I mean, anybody who can teach LSAT well, you know, certainly has, uh, the mental skills and everything else and the motivational skills do a lot of other things as well, I think. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And there's good research on this, too. You know, they did research on this in the L.A. public schools. It turned out that that being a great teacher had everything to do with being a great teacher and commitment to the teaching process and that it wasn't tied to compensation that it wasn't tied to benefits. And you couldn't know until the first couple of years of teaching, whether it was something that you were highly skilled at. My former company, the, the company I worked for when I started, their attrition rate for new tutors was very, very fast. You know, the, the average tutor lasted about a year and a half and moved on. Those that lasted, lasted for a career. There are people that have been at that company 30 years. Yeah. But many, many, many tutors walk through that door, spend a year or two tutoring the, the SAT, make a little bit of money on the side post-college, and then move on to professional school, graduate school, or other careers and leave it behind. Now, how do you think, you both had experience doing tests other than LSAT. One of the things I'd like to ask you and get your comments on is how do you see the LSAT as different from a lot of these? I mean, I certainly see it as different, but I'd be interested in your views as to how it's different. I think it's the most verbally complex exam I've ever studied. And, and that accounts for the bar exam. It accounts for the USMLE 
board exams for doctors. I've looked at a lot of complex exams and I've never found anything with the verbal complexity and rhetorical confusion that the LSAT entails. Yeah, I, I'd agree. And I think I, I, I would presume it's it's intentional on LSAC's part uh, to do it that way. You know, a, a, much of what's there is similar enough to the other standardized tests in the world that you would say, well, it's just simply a, a, um, a refurbished version of reading comprehension from the GRE. Or no, it's, it's not that. It's and not, it's right? not that. It is different. The kinds of questions are different. The complexity of the passages is different. The complexity, the reasoning, uh, the reasoning is different. The, 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 on, a, on a microcosmic scale, the complexity of the language itself is different, intentionally so. Um, uh, you know, and 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 I haven't I haven't taught MCAT uh, or or bar prep, but I've taught uh, SSAT, IC, SAT, ACT, GRE, GMAT. Nothing compares to this test in terms of its difficulty, and 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 the most common sort of frustration for a new student is, well, I was a 4.0 when I was a straight A student in high school, and I scored a 35 on my ACT. And why can't I do reading comp on this test? And why can't I get better? It's different. It's a different beast. And it requires a different way of thinking. It requires a much more rigorous, analytical, uh, and, and structural read. The, on the SAT or on the GRE, you can get away with just going back to line number references, reading a sentence before, reading a sentence after, and getting a good sense of it. That's good enough on those tests. It's not the best way. It's not the... You know, it's not the most uh, comprehensive way of understanding those tests, but it'll get you a good score. That's not good enough on the LSAT. Well, there's, there's no doubt that the LSAT is a tremendously complex test, uh, both the individual parts, but I think uh, the whole thing conceptually as well. You mentioned the GRE, and one of the things that, uh, you know, I've been sort of following for years has been this idea of using the GRE as a substitute for the LSAT for law school admissions. Uh, interesting if you have any thoughts on that in particular. I, I think it, I think it accomplishes certain goals, and and then it and then it does a disservice in other ways. I think there is an access problem with the LSAT. Um, LSAT prep is expensive. Um, it, it's it's a whole set of ideas and of of skills that are not regularly taught. Obscure, uh, to, yeah. yeah, it's it's obscure in a lot of ways. So when thinking about access for underserved communities, underserved demographics, the GRE is a little more accessible in that way. Um, so in that regard, I think it's it's interesting to to accept either test, understanding what the admissions committees have to go through in order to compare GRE students to LSAT students. That, you know, I, I don't I don't know what those discussions are internally, but I know it's challenging for them. I know the numbers are small in terms of GRE acceptances. Um, but I also think that it tests the wrong things. You don't need uh, it's not that you don't need to know formal math to be a lawyer. Of course you do. Of course, you need to have mathematical skills. Right. Those are invaluable oh, in a lot of you, ways. Jay, you haven't been to law school. I want to let you on a little secret here. OK, agree. <laughs> The reason people go to law school is because they can't do math, Jacob. That's, <laughs> that's often the reason. It's the only thing left. It's fair. That's fair. Well, then, then, yeah, then I'll. Then, you know, I'm doing Will's an estate student right now, a uh, tutoring engagement, and really one of the the biggest 
one of the biggest points of pain here is multiplying the fractions. Oh God. <laughs> I'm not kidding. We're you, multiplying you guys, fractions. You guys I, can't I, hear I, my eyes rolling. I believe him. I completely believe him. I mean, you know, oddly enough, when I think back of, you know, my own data as it is, law school experience and that, um, you know, I think that I think that the students who do well in math will do will do well in anything. And I think that those were some of the very, very best law students. But I've got to say, all right, that a very large number of, of uh, students in law school can't do math at all. That's why they choose law school. And I remember going back, uh, you know, in my day, uh, taking a tax course and a professor walked in one day and said, you know, God gave lawyers accountants because uh, lawyers can't manage the math. It's funny. You know, sort well, of thing. Well, well, I will say um, in class the other day, we had a, an LR question in front of us, and I spent 20 minutes talking about Stats 101. And and study design and and you know what what correlation actually actually represents mathematically, um, you know there are some some soft math skills that I think are vital, uh, even if the hard math skills aren't necessary. Trig and calculus may not be applicable, but but the soft math skills certainly are. Well, you have to understand the difference between a number and a percentage. I mean, sure. th those types of questions have been even in the logical reasoning for years and years. No, even yeah. more so, you know, I commented the other day that I think it's apparent to me that my students who struggle with LR never did geometry proofs. They don't understand mm -hmm. the concept of a, a theoretical proof. It's really yeah. hard just to get them up to speed to, to show them, no, you have to have all the pieces of the argument or it's invalid. They don't even get that. And, and I think part of that is born from the fact that they've never put together that kind of puzzle that contained all the pieces to a logical proof. Well, I think it's the difference between reading for information and reading to understand reasoning. Yep, yep, absolutely. You know, and, th and this is a big problem because the LSAT is completely about reasoning. Every logical reasoning question, I think, really can be boiled down to what are they asking me about the relationship between the parts of the argument? Yeah. You know, the joints. Big calls them the joints. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. That's fundamentally, what they all are, right? All right. As we as we're coming to an end, uh, you know, I want to go back to Jake's comment about well, you know, his, his mother was a psychiatrist, and uh, yeah, well, no, because I think that there's a huge emotional uh, sort of component to LSAT prep, and how mm. much of your tutoring do you regard yourself as? Uh, you know, I was I was once thinking of setting up a some kind of a course, okay, called the LSAT therapist. Uh, you know, but I thought that probably wouldn't be all that saleable or they wouldn't take it seriously. But I think that that is an important component. So, Keith, to what extent are you an LSAT therapist? To a large extent. I, I usually use the analogy of a coach more than a therapist because I think coaches deal with some of the same psychological hangups where people don't know they're making mistakes and aren't self-aware enough to regulate their schedules and, and regulate the, their, their habits as they read. And so they need that kind of outside person looking in to do it. So I tend to describe it more like a coach. But I will say this, that part of our triple review process, I have students start taking timed sections very early on, like from day one, even though they tell me I'm going to bomb it. What's the point? And the reason I do it 
is because I want to get them exposed to that discomfort as often and frequently as possible. And I don't want them to waste the test. I want them to follow up with a blind review. I want them to follow up with strategy planning. I want them to follow up with a discussion with me, but I want them to start with a very stressful event so that they just become accustomed to dealing with stress. It's a shock therapy is what I do. <laughs> And uh, and Jake, do you sometimes uh, call your mother and say, "My God, your job is a lot harder than I thought." Uh, about once a month. Um, I, I I'll tell you this. My my half joking communication to my students is that I am one quarter teacher, one quarter therapist, one quarter athletic coach, and one quarter life coach. Um, and and How I, many I play. How was that? That was four quarters. Oh, okay. I was I was counting. <laughs> Yeah, he was testing uh, your math there, Jay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Um, but, but, and, and that's that's not necessarily the devotion of the actual time in sessions. But, but at various times, I play those various roles, and it's the reason why I, when I make analogies about prep, I usually make those analogies to sports because so often people forget that there is skill building and there is going out and playing, and there is playing for fun, and then there's playing for real. And, and all of those things are components. If you're learning to play tennis, the first thing you do is you have a coach teach you how to hold the racket, right? But then eventually, as you get through things, you're playing games in scrimmage against your friends. You are having lessons with your coach where you're learning individual skills. You're going to the gym and you're doing um, aerobic training and weightlifting. And then every once in a while, you're also do entering an actual tournament because you need to know what it feels like to play in a tournament setting and have successes and failures because the failures are where you learn. And if you don't have failures, you're never going to know the points at which you can grow. Well, that's right. And actually, you know, if you don't have failures, you cannot have successes because all, all of these things are relative. So, you know, somebody says, well, I've never failed in anything in my life. Doesn't that really mean I've never had the opportunity to succeed in anything in my life either? What a life. Well, this <laughs> has been a very, very interesting conversation. And uh, it's always fun to talk to, uh, you know, people who've been involved in this murky indescribably complex and frustrating world of LSAT preparation. Uh, and, you know, you got, you got some great insights. So do you have any uh, final comments, a short piece of advice to give to somebody who is getting started, who has just received the message that there's an LSAT coming up in their life? What would be one or two things that you would say to get them pointed in the right direction immediately? Start with Jake. Uh, my my overarching piece of advice to everybody in the LSAT world is stop worrying about how every question to, question is different and start worrying about how they're all the same. Awesome. I won't even ask you for a follow-up. That was good. I don't want people to be distracted. Keith? I say you need to view the LSAT as a springboard, not a hurdle, not a hoop. This isn't just a practical goal, a score. We're trying to learn something here that will propel your career into the future. I think that's great. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll throw in one here, okay? That basically there's a difference between knowing what to do and being able to do what you know. And LSAT prep is primarily about being able to do what you know. All right. Well, this has been uh, fantastic. 
Uh, thanks so much. Uh, I think this will be a great podcast for people to listen to, and we will get it up on the site as soon as possible. So thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks.